All right. That was a lot of text. Thank you for reading that. So I didn't have to. So, first of all, I just want to say I am aware that it's very warm in here, if you didn't notice. And uh, I just want to say that I'm really glad that you all decided to be here anyway and to brave the heat with us. I know that there are probably those who decided, hmm, it's a little bit too warm. I think maybe I'll go to the lake. Maybe some of you are thinking, maybe I've made a huge mistake. The lake sounds awesome right now. Go get some ice cream. But really, I just want to say first that I'm glad you're here. And I am aiming for a shorter message. We'll see how that goes. It's an aim. And uh, we want to try to get to the points a little bit quicker. And also today, at the end of our service, we have communion, as we do at the end of every month. And uh, so I'm really excited about that, to celebrate communion with you guys. And after everything, we bought some watermelon so that uh, you'll stay till the end. So we've got some watermelon, some cool-ish watermelon that we'll be having at the, instead of our normal chips and snacks. Seems appropriate. So before we start, I also want to say that I believe, I really believe that God has this message in mind for you, for you today. It's my prayer and my belief that each and every one of us, each and every one of you here today, would have ears to hear what God wants to say and to show you through our text and what we're going to be talking about today, that you would have a heart to receive that truth, that it would be something that sinks down into you, into the deep inmost parts, and that you would have a mind to act on the truth that you're given, and that none of you would leave today without receiving something from God in one way or another. With that in mind, before we get into it, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you speak to us today, that you want to reveal things to us today, Father, that you want to encourage us, strengthen us, maybe even rebuke us, but Father, whatever it is that you have to say to us, we want our hearts and our ears, our minds to be open, or that we would hear from you, hear your truth, no matter what it is, because it is only you and your truth that really has the power to transform our lives. And that's what our ultimate goal is here today, to be transformed, to be renewed by the power and authority of your word in our life. Speak to us today and help us to be open and help me, Father, to hear from you and to speak only your truth as we go through this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, it starts off verse 8 of chapter 8, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 8. This two-chapter thing is going to throw me off the whole time, I can tell. The king has then has given, kind of, uh, given Queen uh, Esther, this heat has really messed with me, you're going to have to just be, bear with me, guys. Given Queen Esther all of Haman's estate, which she then passed on to Mordecai. All his stuff went to her, she's given it to Mordecai, and then he's put into this really high position, and he actually is going to be put into the position, given the authority that Haman had. So he's given Haman's power. He's given the ring of the king, which gives him the authority of the king. Just as Haman had, he had that power, and he used it, right, to make his edict against the Jews. He used that that ring is what gave him that authority to do that. And now Mordecai has it. 
What I find really amazing about this, this text when we look at this is kind of everything's changing, right? And there's something that I don't know if you noticed that kind of goes throughout a lot of the text from, uh, in both chapters is joy. There was joy amongst the Jews. Things have shifted. Things have changed in the atmosphere of the empire, especially in regard to the Jews. And I'm amazed at how fast, at the speed of this transition, if we look back at the start of the book and uh, chapter between chapter 1 and chapter 2, we kind of see things moving very slow. We talked about that it must have been about four years because he, that was right during the time that the king would have done a, a campaign against Greece. And so we see like a lot of time passing between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And this whole campaign, or sorry, this, uh, this whole thing kind of starts to move faster. It progresses quite rapidly as we go through the book. We see that uh, between, so after that, a few weeks in between the chapters, but here in chapter, chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, kind of 8 and 9 is just kind of telling one story or one kind of major, one event that has happened. Between these, we see things kind of moving really fast, really taking off. We're talking about only just a few days have gone by since everything kind of started moving right at the beginning. It began with a plot to kill the Jews. Haman set himself against the Jews and put this kind of plot into motion, made a decree that those who hated the Jews, those who wanted to, would have the legal right to kill them. And Mordecai tells Esther that, hey, maybe it's for this reason that you've been put there. You're a Jew, although nobody knew that she was Jewish. Maybe it's for this very reason, for such a time as this. It's kind of a famous line from this book. For such a time as this, maybe God has put you there so that you can save the people. And so she agrees. She takes it on, somewhat reluctantly at first, but she takes it on. And she starts off by taking three days to fast and to kind of prepare herself for what she's going to do. And even though throughout the whole book, it's an an odd book, God is not mentioned, nor prayer or anything But in this particular text, we really see the implication that when she took that time to fast, she was taking that time to really seek for God's help, to seek His help. And so this is all, this kind of all began with seeking God and ultimately trusting in His purpose, His plan, His providence, which is God's working in kind of the circumstances behind the scenes in situations his will, trusting in his will to work out a plan to save his people. So she's ta- she starts off by just laying it on him, putting her trust in him. And then things really kind of switch into gear after her time of fasting. Esther agrees, she goes to the king, even though it might mean her death. And her first move, in day one, is not what we would expect, right? She invites the king and Haman, the enemy here, to dinner, which is a bit odd. Doesn't seem to, she doesn't seem to be taking a very direct approach. She just invites them for dinner, her enemy. And we don't know why she did that, but we can really sense God's providence at work. Maybe she felt led. Maybe she kind of knew this is what she was supposed to do. We don't know exactly what happened there. But we see that it worked out for, for, the right, uh, for the, her benefit and for the benefit of the people. Because nothing seems to be happening from Esther's perspective. 
From her perspective, she invites them for dinner. They have dinner. She goes, to, she goes back to her, her chamber, goes to bed, and doesn't know what's going on. But the writer cleverly gives us kind of a bird's eye view of what's really happening through all uh, the others involved in, in their lives. Because that same night, after this banquet, the king can't sleep. And I talked about maybe he just had a little bit too much to eat, maybe some lobster, I don't know, didn't settle right. For whatever reason, he can't sleep. And so he has the, the book of, of kind of events read to him, and he's reminded of Mordecai and how Mordecai saved his life, stopped a plot to kill him. And he's kind of troubled by it. He wants to, he's like, what, we didn't do anything for this guy? And so he takes, kind of takes his, uh, or focuses on trying to figure out how to honor him. And at that same time, the same night, our villain Haman is also unable to sleep, but he's troubled with his hatred for Mordecai. Even, even that's the night that he builds this giant pole, 23 meters high, to have him impaled on. And the next morning, now we're in day two only, Haman is shamed kind of beyond anything that we could relate to as he's forced to honor Mordecai, honor his enemy. We talked about how his pride blinded him to kind of what was really going on. He didn't really see clearly. He could only see himself. And the king asked him how to honor somebody. And again, all he could see was himself and how, what, it, what they might be talking or how the king would only want to honor him. And then he's put into this kind of hilarious, awkward position of having to do the very thing for Mordecai, his enemy, that he had hoped would be done for him. And after having to parade him through the streets of the city, kind of proclaiming and honoring Mordecai as he kind of paraded him through on a horse, which was a pretty rough day, that night is when everything kind of comes to an end for him. And he goes to the second banquet that Esther's invited him to, and here... Esther reveals that he has actually set himself against her personally because she is a Jew. She reveals that she's a Jew. When we didn't talk about it much, but I think it's interesting that she goes with that approach. She doesn't point him out as he's trying to kill the Jews. He, she says, he's trying to kill me because it's just the king, Haman, and her. And the king's like, whoa, wait, he's trying to kill you? The king's not going to have that. Haman had set himself against the Jews and set out to destroy them, not knowing the king's own queen was in fact herself a Jew. And so the king has him impaled on the very pole that he had set up for Mordecai. And I just, this is only two days, guys. That happened so quick. That's just some really big life-changing events that are moving everything into place for what we see here in chapter 8 and chapter 9. The salvation of the Jews. And we don't know exactly why it happened that way, but everything seems to have just worked out perfectly and how God just moved in and changed the circumstance almost instantaneously. And now we're in day three in chapter eight. God has turned everything upside down. Just a few days ago, what hope did they have? What hope did the people really have? Their fate was set their enemies were armed up, ready to attack. They had not only the means to do so, but the legal right to destroy the Jews. There was no reason for them to not prevail over the Jews. Everything seemed hopeless for them. 
but God. But God stepped in. By his providence, close to the last minute, as he sometimes does, came in and changed everything. And I like in the beginning of verse 9, or sorry, beginning of chapter 9, verse 1, it says, now the tables were turned. Now the tables were turned. Everything was flipped upside down. Now the Jews were not the minority, kind of having to hide out, not sure what was going to happen. Now they're a power in the land. Now it's known, wait, actually the queen is Jewish, and now the second in command under the king is a Jew. Everything is just kind of completely shifted almost overnight. They were in fear of the people around them, and now people are claiming to be Jews. And it says that they were becoming Jewish, but uh, in the Greek it's a little bit more, or sorry, the uh, Hebrew it's a bit more ambiguous. It's not, it sounds more like they were claiming to be, like kind of just, oh yeah, I'm, I'm Jewish too, don't, don't attack me. They're just kind of like trying to get on the wagon a bit. Maybe out of fear, I think definitely some of them were out of fear. It says they, were, they feared the Jews because now they realized that, whoa, the people that were kind of a minority that we didn't really think about, they were off to the side, they did their own thing, had their own God. Now they're the ones in power. Now it's kind of popular to be Jewish, suddenly. And so maybe out of fear, some out of respect, and maybe some just because it seemed like the cool thing to do now, I don't know. At any rate, things have shifted for the Jews, for God's people. And I want to encourage you with this today. This will be our first point, point number one. God can shift your circumstances in a moment. God can shift your circumstances in a moment. All hope seemed lost. The decree of the king could not be undone. What hope did they have? They didn't know, but God, but God came in. And he may not be mentioned directly in this book, but his presence is clear in the text. Now Mordecai isn't wearing his sackcloth anymore as he was earlier. Now he has his purple robes on. He's, not wearing, he's now wearing the king's ring, which entitles him to the authority and power of the king himself. He's now owner of the estate of Haman, his enemy. Things have changed, not just for Mordecai personally, but for the entire culture in regards to the Jewish people. It was God that put Mordecai there. It was God that put him in that position. And now he's in a position to issue a second decree that will bring about the change needed for the salvation of the people. All in just a couple days. This happens so rampant, rapidly. God can, and at times does, miraculously transform our situation in a moment. Sometimes we just look and we only see the trouble. We only see the hopelessness. And we can get lost staring at that. We can be dazed staring at the hopelessness and the, the fear of, the, of what's coming toward us, whether it's finances, living in Freiburg, looking for a place to live, can be quite a daunting task ahead of you. Studies, a big tests coming up, whatever it might be. Uncertainty about the future. We can see these things and, and really get lost in the hopelessness, but I want to encourage you that God can shift things quickly. 
God can shift things quickly. And the reality is, is that it's because he was actually at work the whole time. He was actually doing things behind the scenes, as we see here in this story. It wasn't obvious. It wasn't these kind of big moments. It was a dinner party. It was a sleepless night. These little things completely changed and altered the trajectory for the entire people and the entire empire. We can believe for this. And we can pray for this. We should pray for this. We can ask God for these things. And I want to encourage you with that, that when you're looking at the dauntingness of a task or a problem ahead of you, a trouble ahead of you, a trial ahead of you, that you can come to God and say, God, I believe you are working this out for good, that you are going to get me through this, that I don't need to be overwhelmed, I don't need to be crushed by hopelessness, that you can, in a moment, change things, even though I can't fathom how that would be possible, you can. I'm sure that if you asked any of the, the Israelites at that time in any part of the, the provinces of any of the, of the empire, they would not have thought that this is what would happen. In a moment, things can change. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, Jesus tells us. We can ask him. Now, for the Jews, and especially in the, in the capital city of Susa, the door really seemed shut, right? They couldn't possibly have fathomed what would happen. It was hopeless. And I often hear Christians talking about this idea of closed doors. And I just want to touch on this because there are times when God does maybe kind of say no to something because he actually wants to, it's like, mm, I have, this is actually where I want you to go. And he might be kind of veering us in a different direction. Certainly God does do that. And we can call that a closed door if we want, although I'm not a big fan of that term. But other times, I feel like people say things, well, hey, look, I took time to pray. I know that God is leading me in this direction and everything, I tested it. I, I had other people that I tested it with. I really felt like this is where God was leading me. Oh, but here's this obstacle in front of me, so I guess the door is closed. I better find something else to do. I want to encourage you that that's not how we need to interact in our lives, that we have a God who has the keys to the doors. We have a God that can break a door down. He's not stopped by a door if it's closed. God's like, oh, I forgot my keys today. You're going to have to find another way. I know I told you, but I didn't know that this door was going to be there. That's not how God works. And so, again, if we ask the people at this time, they would have said, no way. We're doomed. There's no way. What, how, what could possibly happen? not knowing that all the time God had been setting things in motion, putting pieces together for their salvation without with them having any idea of what was going on behind the scenes. Our God has the keys. He can overcome any obstacle that we're facing. If, and again, sometimes God will maybe say no, so it'll be like, I'm just going to keep pushing even though I'm getting beat up about it. Sometimes God will direct us in a different path, but if, we're, if we've tested it, if we've, we've prayed with other people about it, and we're really, this is where I feel God is leading me to go, but there's this obstacle in front of me, I want to encourage you to not let that be something that destroys where God is trying to get you. I do want to be clear that God does change and work in our situations, and sometimes it is in a moment 
But if we kind of take a full disclaimer here, it may not always look that way. It may not always look the way we wanted it to. And that's not always nice to hear. Some preachers tell us that if we really want it bad enough, we can have it when we want it. But that's not what the Bible tells us. We have a greater hope, a greater trust than that. God was not going to allow his people to be destroyed. And we see this miraculous work of God through these kind of series of circumstances to bring about this kind of mighty transformation that he did, this change to save the people. And in our lives, it may not look like we think it should or the way we want it to. But be, be conscious that God is for you and not against you. And that he is working for your good, sometimes in ways you can't see. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. She didn't know what was going to happen. If I perish, I perish. Okay, I'm going to do this. I think it's the right thing to do. I've taken time. I've prayed. I've sought God. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just, she didn't know if she was going to go into the king and be, and that was it. She was going to be executed or if it would be the salvation of the people. She didn't know what would happen. But she put her trust, and I believe fully, in the Lord. Even though it doesn't say it directly, the implication is clear that God is the one at work behind the scenes. And this is the most important thing to take away, where it really began. We see the rapid transformation really begin to happen from the moment Esther took that time to seek God, to put her trust in Him. And I believe this shows us the importance of putting our trust in him first. Before we're looking at our obstacles, before we're trying to push through, before we're focusing on the, the things in our life, the situations, we need to put our full trust in him. No matter what we're facing, no matter, what the, the, no matter how it looks like it's going to turn out in our, from our perspective, that we really can say like Esther did, if I perish, I perish. No matter what, I'm going to keep on trusting in the Lord. In Joshua 1.9, it says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Wherever you go. And I want to really encourage you with that. Whatever you are facing, you are surely not alone. You are not alone in it. So put your hope and trust in God through Jesus Christ first and foremost. Which leads us to our second point today. God has turned the tables for you already. God has already turned the tables for you in your salvation. In your salvation. That is our greatest hope. That is our foundation. It's where we have to always come back to. It's the gospel. You may say, I've heard this before, but Martin Luther famously said, I preach the gospel of grace to my people every week because every week they forget it. (laughs) And I think in this text we also see, relatively loose, but a loose kind of allegory for our salvation. We see the first decree. The first decree was made and it meant death for the people. This couldn't be changed. It couldn't be altered. There was no hope in sight. There was 
complete hopelessness for the people. This is God's wrath, right? For the wages of sin is death. This is the first decree that we are all under, and we are all under this decree, dead in our sins and completely without any hope to change our situation. No hope in sight. And many are blind to this truth, not even knowing the fate that awaits them, not knowing really where they are. And this may have been the case in parts of the empire, right? We, it's, the word went out, there was horses, they, the fastest horses, and I'm sure that was with the first decree as well as the second. But we don't know how far the information got out in either, in either time, in either decree. They maybe didn't even know that their enemies were mounting against them. This first decree could not be undone. It could not be changed. Once the, the, a king made a decree with his seal, even he himself could not change it or undo it. And this is the truth in the wrath of God, meaning the judgment for sin, the wages of sin being death. It remains still today. It can't be changed. It's not going to be undone. That We're born into sin. It's within our nature. And the punishment for that is death. But God, but God made a second decree. The second decree in the text brought salvation. It brought redemption for the people. But it didn't nullify the first decree. It made a way for salvation despite that first decree. And we see this set up as Esther pleaded again. She threw herself down weeping, pleading for the people leading to the second decree to be made. Just as Jesus Christ intercedes for us or on our behalf, as we talked about last week, pleading our case, seeking us out, the only one who has the right to, to plead our case for us, as none of the people could go to the king and plead for their lives, but Esther could. Now, I just want to point out why through violence, this is an interesting kind of a, approach, right? They're killing all of those who've attacked them, even women and children. But it is important to note that they're only killing those who tried to kill them. So when they were attacked, they defended themselves and attacked and killed those who attacked them first. And it's interesting that they didn't, it it points out that they never plundered their things. They could have taken all of their stuff as well, but they always left that to the side, only doing what they had to do to defend themselves, to save themselves. The people are given their salvation by the right to defend themselves. But we today have a defender. We have one who defends us, Jesus Christ, who stands for us against our enemy. Just as Jesus intercedes for us, as Esther also interceded for the people, he also defends us and guards our hearts, protects us, and keeps us safe in his flock as our good and faithful shepherd. We no longer need to take vengeance on our enemies because that belongs to God, right? Vengeance is the Lord, but rather we put our trust in him, our faith in him, and let him be our strength against our enemies, and ultimately our ultimate enemy, the devil himself. In Romans 8.31, it says that if God is for us, who can stand against us? Who can stand against us if God is for us? In Psalm 73.26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength 
of my heart and my portion forever. The second decree brought salvation for anyone who believed it and accepted it as truth. Just as acceptance of Jesus as our Lord today, trusting our life to him is our salvation. But I think it's interesting to point out, did everybody believe it? Did everybody act on it? Maybe not. Maybe not everybody got the news. We see in the text it says that in every province, so in all 127 provinces, in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews. So there's kind of this implication to everyone, to every city that it came, they had joy. They had gladness in the truth, the good news that they received. But it may not have made it to every village. It may not have made it to every place. And it reminds us of the importance of this great truth that we have, that we've received in knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior and the importance of not just hoping or holding on to that, but sharing it. In Romans 10, 14, how then can they call on the, on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Our salvation is the greatest transformation, the greatest turning of the tables that we will ever experience. And we need to get that message out there. And we can say, well, doesn't everybody already kind of know about Jesus? I mean, at least in Europe. I mean, do we really need to talk about that anymore? I really want to say that we don't want to be on the side of assuming that falsely. It's too important. And in chapter 8, it says that it was written in every language to every people, right? So it's not, it, we really want this to be purposeful, to go out into all the nations, in every language, every tongue, even an English service in Germany, for example. That's why. See, it's biblical. We want to get that word out. Point number three, I said I would try to be quick today. There was joy in the city. There was joy. There was joy in the city. Eight, chapter 8, verse 16. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy gladness and honor. Now I find that interesting because this was before it actually all went down. Before they actually defended themselves. That happens in chapter 9. It was just at hearing the news that they could. In hearing the news that they had the right now to defend themselves, to assemble and to arm themselves against those who would attack them. That their salvation could be at hand, but they didn't know what was going to happen. Their enemies still, remember the first decree still stands. It can't be changed. Their enemies still technically have the right to attack them, which obviously they did because the people they killed were those who tried to attack them, and yet they were victorious. But they don't know how it's going to turn out. Maybe they still are destroyed. Maybe they're still wiped out. Maybe their enemies are too strong. So where is this joy and gladness coming from? The answer is hope. It's in hope. Hope changes everything. What are you hoping in? What is your hope today? I want to tell you directly, let Jesus Christ be the foundation of all your hope and you will find joy. They were... 
they had joy in, in their right to defend themselves. We have a defender who stands for us. We have one who intercedes on our behalf, who pleads our case. When our hope is in him, we can have joy that we will see victory. Even when the future looks uncertain or unclear or even bleak, we have hope. We have something to cling to. Hope isn't just, sometimes this is used in, in the way we talk today, like this isn't talking about this idea that, well, maybe it will work, maybe it won't. Hope is a confidence when we talk about it biblically. Hope is a confidence that it will go well. Even though they didn't know they had hope, we will prevail as a people because of our right to defend ourselves. And when my hope is in Jesus Christ, I know I will prevail no matter what I'm facing because of who he is. And we can have joy in any situation. Psalm 30, 11 through 12, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. With my glory, my, with my glory, May, may I sing your praises and not be silent. O oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Again, in chapter 3, Mordecai was covered in sackcloth. He was mourning because everything seemed hopeless. And now everything has changed because of hope. And now Mordecai is, is dressed in purple robes with the king's own ring on his finger. Put your hope and your trust in the assurance of your salvation through Jesus Christ. You have assurance because of Jesus Christ. It's not you. It's not your work. It's not what you've done. It's what he's done. How much greater a hope do we have than they had? They had joy in the city because they could just defend themselves and maybe it wouldn't go well. We have one who stands for us. We have a greater hope to put our trust in so we should have a greater joy. Jesus talking about his second coming, or sorry, his coming, his coming death and resurrection, says this to his disciples in John 16, 20. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. He knew that his death would be hard on them. They wouldn't understand it would seem so hopeless to see their Savior, the one they followed for the last three years, be crucified. And he knew they wouldn't get it at first. But he said, the rest of the world is going to be rejoicing. And you too will turn your mourning into joy when you realize what it really means that I've died and that I will raise again. It meant hope, not just for them, but for all. All those who heard the truth believed it and acted on it by putting their trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone as their Lord and Savior. I'll close with this to remind you of who our Savior is, what He came for, and the hope that we really have in Him. This is uh, Luke four eighteen through 19, but He's reading a prophecy about Himself from Isaiah 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, 
to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What a hope we have today. What a savior we have, our defender, the one who pleads for us and intercedes on our behalf, the one who seeks us out, the bringer of good news, of freedom and the favor of the Lord. Today, we're going to be closing our service with celebration, with joy, as we prepare to take communion. Let's remember that we're not hopeless anymore. We're not without hope. We're not dead in our sins. We're not dead in our trespasses, stuck under the old decree. We're new creatures in Christ, brought from death into life because of the sacrifice and power and anointing of Jesus Christ. And there is no greater image of a true turning of the tables and bringing of hope to our lives than our salvation. I want to invite the band to come up. We're going to take time now for the communion. Before we do, two things I like to kind of always remind you of, or especially if you're visiting today, to tell you about that we believe here, that uh, communion is for those who believe. It's for those who call on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because when we partake, we're doing it as believers, and we're remembering, but we're also proclaiming our belief in and our trust in the death of, on the death of Christ on the cross to cover our sins. And we're also proclaiming the freedom we have from all condemnation, that there, Jesus says that who, can, who condemns? No one. No one condemns because Christ intercedes for us. We are completely forgiven through grace. And so communion is for those who accept this as truth. Uh, so yeah, no matter if you're visiting or uh, if you come for on a regular basis, you're all, all those who claim this to be a truth in their life yes Jesus is my Lord not perfectly I don't do everything perfect but I I see him as my Lord then you are welcome to join us in communion and the second thing is that we also believe in repentance of our sin and also of giving Christ our burdens and what I mean is that when when we talk about repentance it's not about God needing uh, to hear from us He knows, before we come to him, the things we're struggling with. He knows our sins. He knows our burdens. Repentance is for us. Repentance is for us to declare and to confess our sins, to show, to confess that we're not perfect, that we have these things that we mess up in. Because when we do, we're confessing that we need a Savior, that we need somebody to redeem us. We need somebody to defend us. We need somebody to stand for us. We can't do it on our own. And that we're not perfect. We know we're not perfect. But that we know we're also being perfected through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to take right now two or three minutes. We'll just, as the uh, band plays, we'll just have two or three minutes for you to take, reflect, lay anything, any burden, any trouble, anything that maybe, like I said, maybe sometimes we look at the things ahead of us and get overwhelmed that we can lay that before Christ and we can hopefully lay down our hopelessness and receive hope from him. Or if it's a sin you're struggling with, you can repent of that and say, here's the thing I'm struggling with. But right now we'll take two or three minutes for that and then I'll invite you all to come up and grab an element and we'll take communion here together, nice and warm at the front.